Thanks, Chair. Morning, everyone. Good morning to those at home. I trust that you're nice and warm at home. You can probably tell by my voice that I've picked up a cold or flu. It's probably developed into man flu by this stage. <clears throat> and if you don't know what that means, then God has blessed you. I also heard this morning from Callie that some of the Queensland team have COVID. So the whole Queensland team are still waiting for the results of the COVID test. Is that correct? So they will default. <laughs> Victory is... Yeah. It's on this Wednesday night, isn't it? Who cares, yes? <laughs> Who cares? If Queensland wins, I don't think it's very important at all. It's not an important game, it's a game. But if New South Wales wins... <laughs> yeah, there goes the sound. Excuse me. <coughs> I'm going to have to try and cough without amplifying it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be together. And things like State of Origin, Lord, while it's entertaining, it's not important. You're important. Our relationship with you, with one another, walking in obedience to you and being an agent for change in this world, that's what's important. So thank you, Lord, and help us to keep our priorities exactly right. Um, and we pray that you will be pleased this morning to speak to us, to remind us, and to empower, strengthen us to be ongoing agents of the Lord Jesus in this world. We ask and pray in his name. And everybody said, Christian faith, it's beginning, growing, as well as overcoming. That's pretty much a summary of this passage when we come to uh, 1 John chapter 5. Um, it's not so much a passage, there is something in here for us to do. <clears throat> John is really writing, it's a summary of the end of, not the end, but coming to a summary of his argument to this point where he's trying to draw an emphasis, a threefold emphasis, of things that we are to know. <clears throat> it's content or a propositional truth. That there are, because we know these things, then that encourages us, gives us faith and assurance and helps us have confidence, not only of our own spiritual standing, but also an awareness of others' spiritual standing. I'm going to give you an illustration and then uh, we'll jump in. This is my illustration. Uh, <clears throat> pity I didn't have an easel, but I didn't think of it. Um, I want you to think of a triangle. In fact, two triangles, but a triangle. And at the top of the triangle, there is God or Jesus. The base of the triangle is you. And on the other side of the triangle are other believers. This is an emphasis that John has all the way through this letter that if we know God through Jesus, we have faith in him, in Jesus, but we also have a relationship with other believers. These three form a triangle which is inseparable. It's not, I can have faith in God, in Jesus, and that's it, because part of the triangle is missing. And it's not, I can have a relationship with other Christians without being close to God. All of these must go together. It's a threefold balance. And in fact, in this passage, John will use three words. From my perspective, it's we believe, we have faith. From God's perspective, or Jesus, we obey his commands. 
And from the other believer's perspective is we love them. We act in love towards them. So faith, obedience and love. That threefold structure is inseparable. And John, as we have said on numerous occasions, doesn't argue in a linear fashion. He doesn't make a truth and then draw application to it. He tends to, flowing out of the application and what truth it is, he arrives at the truth. He's more of a circular argument. He goes around and around. And the language, as you first read it through, it can be quite unusual for us. But the more you probe and the more you consider exactly what he's trying to say and how he repeats himself backwards and forwards, you end up with that sort of understanding. John says to us, um, in fact, verses 1 to 5 of 1 John 5 could in fact be a summary of the Christian life, a, a unit summary. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Well, those three things, as he will emphasise for us. It begins with faith. There's a growing experience through obedience and loving one another. And ultimately, there is an overcoming faith. As we mature in Christ, we overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is the emphasis that John has for us. In verse 1, John says, Everyone who believes, believes what? That Jesus is the Christ. Is what? Well, they're born of God. And everyone who loves the Father will love, not only love the Son, but love his child as well. Commentators want to argue in the second half of that, that the Father, you love the Father, you love the Father's Son, Jesus. But that's probably not what John means. I think what John means is if you love the Father, you'll love the Father's children, one another. You can't separate the Father, you can't separate God from his children. That's the triangle bit, you see. They go together. Everyone who believes, there's the first word, belief. Believes what? That Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. Who's born of God? Well, some people would say, everybody's born of God. We're all part of, you know, God is our, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man and that sort of thing. But it's not true, is it? Because as we have said on numerous occasions, there are two families in, the, in this world. There are those who are not believers and there are those who are believers. And there is a gulf between them. There's not an overlap, there's not a link. There's a clear demarcation. Those who know and follow Jesus and obey him, those who don't. There are some who are on the edge of that. They look like they might be following Jesus, but they haven't actually been born of God, not yet. They're in the process thereof. Um, and what's the great difference between these two kingdoms, these two families? Faith. Faith is the link that uh, faith is the key, if you like, to the door of our relationship with Jesus, of our walk with him. We need to have faith, taking him at his word. And that's exactly what he'll get to in verse 12 of this chapter, which we won't this morning. But he basically says, if you have the son, you have life. If you don't have the son, you don't have life. You're still in the kingdom of unbelief. Well, if we look at this verse um, very carefully, how do we know that we have this new life. How do we know that we are born of God? Well, John explains it very carefully. If you believe these four things about Jesus, and every one of them is important, that Jesus is the Christ. It's a simple statement. But if you take each of them um, one by one, that you believe that Jesus, a human, born in Bethlehem, 
a real human being, a real person in space-time history, a person who had a place in history, Jesus. If you believe that person, Jesus, is, not was, is, remains because he's alive, because of the resurrection. Jesus is, and if I jump ahead, John, one word, the Christ. That he is the divinely promised one, that he is the anointed of God, that he is the one who came to deliver us from sin and Satan and death and punishment, from our fears and from our habits, because in him dwells all the fullness of God bodily. If you believe that Jesus, the human person, is God in the flesh, is, not was, Christ. And he's not only Christ, the anointed one, he is the Christ. He's not a Christ, he's the Christ, he's unique. There is any, there's salvation only through him, he is the only one. <clears throat> it's not just simply saying that Jesus is Christ, do you believe it? And it's not simply a, a mental assent to that truth, it's a heartfelt commitment to that understanding that Jesus is the one, he is the Christ that I am to fully rely on. And if you believe that with all of your heart to the depth of your being, then you have been born of God. Because only those who are born of God will believe that. This is John's argument. So if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you have transferred from the, that kingdom to his kingdom. You've been born again. Or as John uses this phrase, born of God. Certainly John was present on that night that Nicodemus came and visited Jesus and Nicodemus, a very religious Pharisee, <clears throat> very moral, upright, theologically educated person, what have I got to do to get into the kingdom of heaven basically? Jesus says you have to be born of God, you have to be born again and he didn't get it. So Jesus went on to explain it to him very simply, you need to believe in the Son. And then Jesus quotes, he quotes an Old Testament example of where as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, <clears throat> and the background to that story, just quickly for those who may not be familiar with it, is that the people of Israel had been delivered from Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and they're complaining. They're complaining about the manna that they've got to eat, and they're complaining about they don't have enough food, uh, flesh to eat, and they're complaining about not having enough water to drink, and they're whinging. And God is sick of the whinging. So he punishes them. He sends serpents among them, uh, poisonous serpents who bite them. And in the process, they die. But in the provision of the punishment, God always provides a way of escape, a way of deliverance from the punishment that he institutes. And in this case, he had instructed Moses to make a large bronze serpent, to put it on a pole and to lift it up in the camp. And then the instructions were very simple. If anybody looks... To the serpent on the pole, they will be healed. It's very simple, isn't it? You get bitten by a snake and all you have to do is look. Delivered. So Jesus used that illustration. What does it mean to be born again, to be born of God, to have a fresh start in life? You just need to look. It's as simple as that. And instead of saying look, Jesus says believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes, looks. Simple as that. And it's again, it's, 
It's not mental assent, it's a heartfelt commitment too. It's believing sincerely, fully, and committing yourself to it. And so that's what John is uh, coming to argue with us here, that everyone who believes, not the mental assent, the full-on heart commitment, you believe that Jesus is the Christ, well then you're born of God. You can know that for yourself, but you can know that for others. If they confess and profess that faith, then you can have reason to believe that they're in the kingdom. But there are two other evidences that John will go on to give us, which will um, confirm and strengthen that understanding and that faith. That it's real, that it's not just pretending. John goes on to say, and everyone who loves the Father, whether by professing it or sincerely feeling it, they will automatically also love the child as well. You cannot separate fathers and children. You cannot separate God and his children. Hurt my child, you hurt me. We understand that as parents, don't we? What happens to you when you take your child or your grandchild to a play centre and some other kid, you know, picks on them? Suddenly you rise up as a mighty deliverer for your child, your grandchild, don't you? Don't you? Of course you do. You can't separate their attitude towards you from their attitude towards your kids. So too with God. Um, you can't divorce God and his children. Remember the triangle? That's where we are. And so John goes on to give us this evidence of this demonstration of this faith is real. Verse 2 he says, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying his commands. It's a bit circular, isn't it, in argument? If you love God, then you'll love his children. How do you know you love his children? Well, you love God. It is circular because he's, in John's way of writing, he's trying to demonstrate you can't separate these two. They belong together. That's like a coin. Faith is the rim of the coin, and on one side is loving and obeying God, on the other side is loving and obeying, uh, serving and loving other people, particularly those members of the family. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. If you truly love a fellow believer, the best thing you can do for them, besides offering practical help and caring for them and all those things, the best thing you can do for them is to love God and to obey his commands. To model that, excuse me, to model that before them and to encourage them in the same, with full obedience to God. That's the best thing we can do for one another, to hold each other accountable, to encourage each one another in our relationship with God, which then in turn will overflow into our attitude and relationships and closeness with one another. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. So this is the evidence. If faith is the seed, if you like, if faith is the key that unlocks the door to the beginning of this Christian life, if it's the seed that is planted in the ground and it forms the root, then faith is the foundation, it's the, the root of it, but there is fruit that comes out of that plant, out of that faith in Jesus comes obedience to God and loving one another. No fruit, something's wrong with the root. The faith is not solid. In fact, this is love for God. How do you know you love God? You'll obey his commands. 
How does a husband know that his wife loves him? She will obey his commands. It's true, isn't it? Doesn't work in reverse. How does a wife know that a husband loves her? Ephesians 5. She has to deny herself and submit to him. Yes. He has to die to himself and sacrifice for her. And the decisions he makes are for her benefit, not for himself. That's what the Bible says, how a husband is to love his wife, as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. So, fellas, lift your game. You need to love her more. We need to much be, be much better examples of loving Christian men who are godly and loving our wives and our kids and helping them to love God and serve him. And John is basically saying what happens in a marriage relationship, that ideal way of a Christian marriage, is that's what it's supposed to be like in the church. And in fact, the church is the bride of Christ. And he's the husband. And that's how he acts towards us. He lays down his life for us and he does everything that is best for us in order that we can love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And we are to join hands in doing that. This is what love for God is. Do what he says. Keep his commands. This is the first. You cannot separate, as I've said, God and his children. In Acts chapter 9, the kids did this during Kids Club. There is this wonderful story how... A sad story begins with this guy called Saul, who will become the Apostle Paul when he gets converted. Saul is angry with the church and he's furious with these Christians who go around promoting Jesus as Lord and saying he's risen from the dead and drawing people away from Judaism. And he is furious and murderous. And he's arresting people and knocking on doors and finding out if they're professing faith in Jesus. And he's so passionate about doing this, he even goes to the high priest to get letters to introduce him to a city called Damascus where he's heard there are Christians have fled there so he's chasing them and whilst en route Jesus meets him blind, blind, blinding light from heaven and knocks him off his horse and the voice turns out to be Jesus says to him Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? well Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus he was persecuting Christians but you can't separate Jesus and his family. What you do to one another, you do to him. That's John's argument. And Saul says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It's a real slap in the face. And the transformation of the Apostle Paul follows in a few days from that. This is love for God. Keep his commands. And John goes on to tell us, and that his commands are not burdensome. They're not too heavy. They don't weigh you down. If you're a person who really believes that Jesus is the Christ, that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, then you will find increasingly that God's commands are not burdensome. They're not a burden. They're more a delight. It doesn't mean they're easy. And it doesn't mean we do them perfectly. But it does mean that there is a change going on. James Boyce says, The life of God in us 
makes obedience to to the commands of God possible. And the love the Christian has for God and for other Christians makes this obedience desirable. Give it to you again. The life of God within us makes obedience to his commands possible. And it's the love that God has placed in us for him and for others, for other Christians, makes this obedience desirable. We want to be obedience. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 11 says, Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you and it's not beyond your reach. We find increasingly that the commands of God are within reach and are beneficial. In the beginning faith, you will rub against some of them, that you will go, I don't want to do that. But as you mature, as you move from beginning faith to growing faith, you'll have an evidence of keeping his commands and you will grow in um, the ease of obedience. And like I said, our obedience is not perfect. It's something we have to continue with. But it's what the Lord Jesus says. Come to me, all are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. Link yourself to me. Submit to me. Let's do this together. For my yoke is easy. And the burden that I give is light. God's commands to us are not burdensome because whenever God gives us commands, he also gives us the power, the ability, the desire to want to do it. It's not just up to us. God never commands us to do something without also empowering us. God never guides us somewhere and tells us to go do something without also uh, going before us and providing for us. If we obey him, he provides and guides. And we've been experiencing that over the years. God's commandments are not burdens because even when we blow it, even when we stumble, even when we're disobedient to it, we get upset with it. We confess it and then we want to do it. We ask God to forgive us and we try again. But ultimately, God's commands are not burdensome because we love him. Love lightens the load. Remember Jacob? Fell in love with a lady called Rachel. And went into an agreement with her father that he would work for seven years to pay for the dowry in order for him to marry him. And he worked those seven years. And the scripture says that the seven years seemed to him like a matter of days because of the love that he had for her. And then you know the story. At the end of the seven years, he gets married, but it's not to Rachel, it's to Rachel's sister, Leah. And so Jacob works another seven years, 14 years. And this was not a burden to him because of the love that he had for her. So too with us. In fact, this is love for God that we keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. We increasingly find our delight in them. Just like Psalm 119 says over and over again. And David loved the law of God because he loved the God of the law. So too for us as we grow in our love for God. We grow in our obedience and we grow in our love and attitude towards others. So a growing faith, this second stage if you like, enables us to be God's agents in this world to bring about the fulfilment of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what we are living out. We are a fifth gospel. God wrote four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, plus the witness of our lives. As we walk with him, as we 
love and obey him, love and care for one another, and exercise trust and faith in him. Our life demonstrates the reality of the gospel. The gospel transforms us. And most people out there won't read the four gospels, but they'll read you. They'll read your life. And that's God's plan. That's God's intention. That's how he wants to use you. Well, there's another step. John goes on to say, his commands are not burdensome. For everyone who is born of God, what? Overcomes the world. Conquers, is victorious. You win. Now, for some of us, we don't have that experience early on in our Christian life, but as you mature in Christ, you'll go on and you will increasingly experience not ultimate perfect victory and overcoming, but you'll get snippets of it where you have victory over temptation, over sinful habits, reconciling relationships, submitting to and walking in obedience to God, you'll find that increasingly. And everyone born of God who is part of his family overcomes the world, the influence of the world, the flesh and the devil around us. And what is the victory that overcomes our world? Our faith. So it all links back. Our faith in Jesus introduces us into his family, which introduces us into a growing desire to obey him and a growing desire to love and care for one another. And because we believe and confess, as John draws this to a conclusion in verse 5, whoever overcomes the world, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Your faith in God links you to other believers, the triangle again. You believe, you obey him, and you love them. All three are necessary. This is what John is writing about. And when he talks about overcoming, he's talking about we live in the world. Jesus has sent us into the world, and the world pushes back against us. You'll feel the pressure and the temptations and the influence of the world around you. But it doesn't overcome you. There'll be times of defeat, but you'll get up again. But we overcome the world. We live as sincere followers of Jesus in the midst of all of this going on because we bear his name. The Alexander the Great, the great conqueror, once noticed that one of his soldiers was a little bit um, cowardly and tardy in his enthusiasm to be fully obedient in the battle. So he drew him aside and he said, what is your name? He says, my name is Alexander, to which Alexander the Great was shocked and horrified that this soldier, who was a below-rate soldier, was underperforming, but he bore the same name as he did, as the king. So Alexander said to him, change your behaviour or change your name. You bear my name. You represent me or behave like me. Change your name or change your behaviour. So the application's easy, isn't it? We bear the name of Jesus. Let our behaviour reflect the reality of Jesus in us and we will overcome the world. Positionally, of course, it's already done. It's all done on Calvary, what Jesus has done for us. John 16, 33, you know, don't fear. In the world you'll have tribulation, don't fear. I have overcome the world. The victory is already there. We've already won. What we are doing now is working that out. Presently, we are experiencing the battle, the fight. If you go into a fight... You're going to get dirty and you're going to get hit and you're going to get bruised, but you will not be defeated because we've already won. This is what John is saying. 
because you've already been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, because you've been born of God, because you have God's life living in you. This is evidenced by you keeping God's commands and by loving your brothers and sisters and by you exercising um, faith, loving trust in Jesus, then you'll experience his growth in your life. Not so much things for us to do, but things for us to know. So we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. We are fighting as those who have already won, that we can't ultimately be defeated. We are not sinless, but we sin less. We are overcoming. We are growing and we will win some battles. So we are not fighting, if I can say it this way, we're not fighting to be freed from sin. You know, if it's up to me, um, if it has to be, then it's up to me. It's my own effort, my own trying, and my good works, my religiosity. That's what's going to do it. No, no, no. We're not fighting to be freed from sin. We are fighting because we are already free from sin. We are letting it work its way out in our life. We have been set free, and as those who have been set free, we are to choose. We no longer have to sin because we are dead to sin and alive to him in Christ, Romans chapter 6. This is John's argument. So let me draw it to a conclusion. Let me give you this illustration first. In the American Civil War, there was a man who was a beggar walking around and making sorts of statements like, I know, I know Abraham Lincoln and begged people for money and people out of pity would give him support, food, money, whatever. And eventually one person in one particular town, they got a bit suspicious about it so they challenged him about, do you really know President Lincoln? And he said, well, I can't read. And he draws out of his pocket a letter. He said, but here is a letter and that's his signature on that letter. Gives it to the person who is challenging him and the person says, this is yours and it is the president's signature. And here you are a beggar walking around begging people for food and for scraps and for money and this letter is actually a federal pension for you. You already have everything provided for you. You just didn't know it, ignorance. And so too for us as we follow Jesus in this world, we already have everything we need to be victorious, to overcome, to love one another, to keep his commands. It's already provided for us. We just have to embrace it and work it out in our lives in obedience to him, if that makes sense. Here is the summary. If we agree with God about Jesus, then we are born of God and adopted into his family. That Jesus is the Christ, the Lord the Son of God, the Saviour of the world. And if we believe that, then we also receive from him his spirit, his love, and a desire within us to be fully obedient to him. And if we love God, we will love God's people. So faith is the key to the door to following Jesus, John says. That's beginning faith. And if you have beginning faith, you've been born of God, then you'll evidence it with growing faith in keeping his commands and loving one another. And as you grow in faith, you will grow into and experience overcoming faith, overcoming the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the things the Apostle John wants us to know, 
and on the basis of knowing it, derive confidence and assurance for ourselves and to encourage one another with these truths. Let's pray together. Simple truths, Heavenly Father, but powerful, foundational, spiritual pillars for us to build our life on. That, Lord Jesus, you are the Christ and there is no other. And we believe that. And because we believe that, we've been changed. We've been born of you. We've been transferred to your family and you've adopted us to be your brothers and sisters. And you use us in this world as your agents to spread the gospel that others might join the family as well. And you call us, as your brothers and sisters, to obey the Father and to love one another. Lord, continue to work these truths in us and through us. And may we increasingly experience overcoming the world, the flesh and the devil. That you might be glorified and that you might achieve your purposes. We ask and pray this in your name, Lord Jesus, for your glory. And everybody said... That's the end of our service. May God go with you this week and may you remember these truths and embrace these truths and have victory through them. May the love and mercy of our loving Heavenly Father be with you. The grace